I guess it's been about 29 days ago that you and I crossed the threshold into a new year, into 2023. And if I would ask you as an individual, what are your goals, what are your aspirations for 2023, what would you say? Now, I don't need a verbal response, but think about, what are your goals and aspirations for 2023? I'd like to broaden the question beyond 2023 this morning and ask you this question. What is your ultimate goal in all of life, either physical or spiritual? What would you say? And if there's anybody brave enough, what is your ultimate goal, physical or spiritual, in all of life? Does anybody want to respond? Well, here's my response. I want to make it to heaven. Maybe before that, I didn't put this in my notes. It's my desire to hear those words. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. But maybe y'all were a little timid this morning. But I believe that each one of you sitting here, your ultimate goal is you want to make it to heaven. As of November 15, 2022, the world population reached 8 billion people. And whether those people were our believers or unbelievers, I believe if you would ask each one of those 8 billion people, what is your ultimate goal? They would say the same thing. They'd say, I would like to make it to heaven. And I was really blessed this morning. Um, the songs Claude led, he led one of the songs that led right into the message said, lead us to God, and another part said, lead us to heaven. We're talking about heaven this morning. Thank you, Claude. And then when Nick got up, he read from John chapter 17, verse 24, and uh, I'm trying to think how that, how that went. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn to it, John 17. I'm just impressed of how often God orchestrates a service to include um, things that I was not expecting, but leads into the, the sermon. Father, I will that they also may be one whom thou hast given me. Jesus said, whom thou hast given me. Jesus' desire was that, that we would be, he said, be with me where I am. Jesus' desire is that you and I would be where he is. That's in heaven. So, those, those things really blessed and encouraged me this morning as I thought about the message. And so to you, brothers and sisters, there is a prescribed route to that destination that we call heaven. But you know, there's a lot of people in our world today that they want to hit the bypass. Many people in our world, they want to embrace a map that they say, well, there's a lot of routes to heaven. There's a lot of ways to get there. That was, that was true 2,000 years ago, and it's true today. But what does the ultimate authority say about heaven and how to get there? There's a phrase that has astounded me for some time, and I've shared a little bit briefly, but I don't know that I ever had a message on it, but I would invite you to Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. The title of the message, An Exception Clause. We want to look at God's word this morning, or the words of Jesus, and these are not my words, these are words of the Lord Jesus when he said, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. I believe this statement is an astounding statement. In essence, Jesus states that external compliance is not enough. If we follow man's prescribed route, it's a sure ticket to hell. That's pretty strong. That's really serious. Those are not my words. Those are the words of Jesus. And maybe you would say, Jay, your message is kind of negative this morning. But I felt to include the words of Jesus when he, when he said what he did. In Matthew 5.20, it seems that the scribes and the Pharisees, they were a law unto themselves. They felt that God's word given to Moses was inadequate. So they added about 625 of their own laws to the original ten. And the religious leaders, their focus was entirely on the external and they, that did nothing to change the heart. Jesus said in Matthew 23, verses 4 and 5, he said, but all their works they do for what? What? Correct. All the works that the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they did for one purpose, to be seen of men. You know, it kind of reminds me of an encounter I had some years ago, early, soon after I was ordained. I was asked to share in Pennsylvania on an evening conference. And after that conference, I was coming home, and it was in the wintertime, and it was cold, really cold. If I remember right, it was 5 or 10 degrees. When I left Maryland that night and was coming down through, coming toward home, and the heater in our van didn't work. And I was cold. I was really cold. And I stopped in uh, West Virginia somewhere along the way. And I went into a store, a Sheets or somewhere, and I walked in and to get a cup of coffee and maybe a donut. I don't remember anymore. But the man behind the counter, he said, that's a neat coat you got on. Can I ask you a question? Well, what's coming now? I said, yeah, you can. He said... Now, at the end of life, if you would weigh all the good you do, and if you do more good deeds than bad deeds, will you make it to heaven? What would you tell? What would you tell him? I told him, no, our works does not have anything to do with going to heaven. It's only by receiving the shed blood of Jesus Christ. At least that's what I remember, think I remember telling him. It's not on our work, but there's a lot of people in our world today that feel like if they do lots and lots and lots of good things, as opposed to the bad, they're going to make it into heaven. Is that what Jesus says? Jesus said, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not going to make it. His words, not mine. And I would tell you, I'm certainly no authority on the mindset of the religious leaders. 
But if you would ask Jay, if you would ask me to sum up their mindset in four words, this is what I would say. The flesh craves recognition. Now, I don't know what you would say. You might say something different. And I want to ask you, do you and I struggle with this same issue of desiring recognition? And I would say, yes, we do. And I'm going to share two issues, two times, when I remember that it affected me. On May the 9th, 1997, I preached a sermon at Raleigh Springs entitled The Christian and His Thought Life. And after that service, there were some favorable commendations that came my way for that sermon. Boy, that felt good. I liked that. But it wasn't real good for me. But how is it that I remember? It's almost 26 years ago. And I remember where it was. I remember what I preached and the title of the sermon and whatever. So do we struggle with commendation, getting out of line? I think we do. One other time, some years ago, I had did some carpentry work in a house, some trim carpentry, and there was a man that came by and observed the carpentry work, and he gave some very favorable, favorable comments about that. And you know why I liked it? Not because he was an ordinary man, but because he was a carpenter. And he had been for many years, and he... But those things are not good for us. We need to be careful. I don't care whether you're teaching Sunday school class, you're leading a song, you're preaching a sermon, you're doing your work, you're cutting wood, whatever. We need to be careful that commendation does not crop up. That is what often the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, they were looking for. I don't have time to turn to all the places. There's lots of places where Jesus spoke about it, that these scribes and Pharisees, they wanted to be thought good. They wanted the praise of men, just like Sister Ellen said. You were right. Jesus said, Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are the words of Jesus. First point of the message. I'd like to call this a perforated faith or a faith with holes in it. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. I'll try to move through these fairly quickly. These... Two accounts I'd like to share with you are very familiar accounts, but we have two people contrasted in this account. Luke 18, verses 10 to 14, two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican or a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, <coughs> I thank thee that I'm not as other men are extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week, and I give tithes of all that I possess. That's the one man, but the other. And the pair of publicans standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the second man, went down to his house, justified rather than the other, for every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Very quickly, we have two people contrasted in this passage. We have the one man on one side and the other man on the other. We have one man, a son of Abraham, 
who was prejudiced, we have on the other side a publican who was a sinner. The one man was proud, the second man was humble. The first man was self-righteous, the other one was contrite. The first man listed his good deeds, and the second man, he pled for mercy. The first man went home condemned, and the second man went home justified. Now why did Jesus tell this parable? Verse 9 tells us why. The verses before, we started verse 10, drop back to verse 9, and Jesus tells us why this parable was spoken. And he spake this parable, why? Unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Except your righteousness exceed what we see here, you're not going to make it, neither am I. Those are Jesus' words. Do we struggle with this type of mentality? Do we struggle with a perforated faith or a perforated righteousness in 2023? And I would say yes, we do. Turn with me to John chapter 8. Another familiar account. This is the woman that was taken in adultery. Once again, a contrast. John chapter 8. I don't think I'm going to read the whole passage. It's uh, verses 1 to 11. I'll read a little bit. John chapter 8, verse 1, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came unto him and sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. And you know how they said, Moses says we're supposed to stone her, but what do you say? Verse 6 in the middle, but Jesus stooped down with his finger and he wrote on the ground as though he didn't hear him. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and he said, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. In verse 9, he stooped down again and wrote on the ground. And verse 9 really stood out to me as I prepared for this. Notice what happened as Jesus wrote. I really would love to know what Jesus wrote in the sand. I don't know. But it had an effect. Verse 9, And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, (coughs) even into the last, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And Jesus said, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. Notice Jesus' response. Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more, or go and leave your life of sin. Once again, quickly, on one hand we have the religious leaders. On the other hand, we have a sinful woman. The religious leaders, they proclaim their external righteousness, and the woman was guilty. The religious leaders were hypocritical. The woman stood condemned. The religious leaders were under conviction. Look at verse 9. And the woman was filled with sorrow and remorse. The woman taken into adultery. And this, I thought, was so... You know, we don't read it this way, I don't think quite. But from what we do see, the religious leaders, they rejected the remedy. They went out. They were stricken in their conscience. Jesus was there. He could have given them forgiveness if they would have repented. 
He could have done that, but they chose not to. They walked out, carrying their load of guilt and sorrow and blame. They carried it out, but the woman, Jesus said, Neither do I condemn thee. Go leave your life of sin. And I wrote in here, and I'd be glad for your commentary or what you believe, but I wrote in my notes, Forgiven under contingency. I don't know what you would say about that, but it seems to me Jesus, he said, now I'm not going to condemn you, but he said, leave your life of sin. So I personally believe Jesus forgave this woman as long as she would leave her life of sin. Now, I don't know how you look at it. I'd be glad for your comments, you know, if you feel like I've missed it. But in these two accounts, I'd like to ask you, which one of these people do you most identify with? Are you full of pride? Do you have any prejudice? Are you at times self-righteous? Are you hypocritical? Or are you a person who recognizes, like the in verse 9, that you have needs, but you go out and leave carrying that blame? Do you feel like you don't have any needs? Or on the other hand, do you feel that you are guilty? Do you feel that you're needy? Are you humble? Are you contrite? And I ask you, which one are you? When was the last time that you or I confessed a sin to the Heavenly Father? When was the last time that we confessed a sin to our spouse? Maybe one of your children or a brother and sister in the church, or even a co-worker, and you went to them and said, I'm sorry for what I did. Will you forgive me? When's the last time we've done that? Do we have any needs? Do we ever mess up? Do we acknowledge? Do we ever repent of it? Are we humble? Are we transparent? Second point of the message, I like to call this a flawed modern-day theology. And I would like to give credit where credit is due. I heard this recently from Todd Miller, bishop in Northwoods Mennonite Church where Wayne and Sharon go. He shared a phrase that I never heard before. This is not scriptural, but I thought it was worthy to consider. He said he feels like there's a lot of people today with an inverted Christianity. And he went on to explain that inverted Christianity is living life upside down. It's a, having a faith in what we don't do rather than what we are called to do and rather than our position in Jesus Christ. And he said this, and I thought this was very interesting. We are not Christians because of an, the absence of bad fruit. We are not Christians because of an absence of bad fruit. And some people may feel they're good Christians because, well, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't curse, I don't swear, I don't use alcohol, I don't lie, I don't steal, I don't cheat on my taxes, and you fill in the blank. Some people feel like they're good because I'm not doing some of the bad that's out there. That could be true. But where are you placing your faith? Hopefully we don't have a perforated faith. I hope we don't, we're not embracing a flawed modern day theology. 
Jesus said, Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, what is a correct view of Christianity? That is when we have confessed our sins. That's when we are forgiven. That's when Jesus has taken up residency in our hearts. And the living flame of the Holy Spirit motivates us to live as Jesus would. And we recognize a continual need for the grace of God. We recognize our need for forgiveness. We recognize our need for compassion, for wisdom and discernment. And we come to him often seeking those things. A correct view of Christianity. Last point of the message, Jesus teaching on heaven. To you, my brothers and sisters, I believe that one of Jesus' greatest goals and aspirations is that his followers would join him in an eternal residence in heaven. And Brother Nick already read about that this morning, that Jesus wants us to be where he is. Thank you for that, Nick. You didn't know it was leading up, but it was. Thank you. Jesus wants to be with him in a place called heaven. Turn with me to John 14, 1 to 6. I'd like to read these verses. John 14, verses 1 to 6. Let not your heart be troubled, Jesus said. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Once again, Jesus' heart and desire, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. How can we know the way? Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The road, the route to heaven is an exclusive one. It's narrow. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Don't put your faith in stock in a lot of the works and the things that you can do. Have your faith in Jesus Christ. And you, if you would ask me, Jay, are works important? I would say, yes, they are. But they are not to gain merit with God. I think Brother Jim from years ago would say, works are not meritorious. I can't say it like he would. But works are not to gain merit with God. Our works are an appreciation for what God has done, what Jesus has done in our hearts and lives. And that should be flow out because of our love and appreciation for Jesus. This passage we just read is the prescribed route to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. There are many people today in our world that want to bypass the cross. They want to bypass the blood of Jesus. They want to bypass repentance. They want to bypass forgiveness of sin and living a holy life. But these things are important if we want to embrace the route that Jesus has laid out for us. The disciples asked the signs at the end of the age. They came to Jesus and said, Lord, what is going to happen at the end of the age can somebody tell me the first thing out of Jesus' mouth when, he, when the disciples are asking that? John, I'm sorry, Matthew 24, 
What did Jesus say when they asked him, you know, what's the sign of your coming? Correct. Thank you, Ilan. Right on. Uh, that reminds me of Brother Branson Conley. I think he just said, right on. Correct, Ilum. And I ask you, that was appropriate for Jesus' day 2,000 years ago. But what about today? Is deception rampant among us? It is. It's appropriate. And that's why we're looking at it today, because I think we need it. I'm going to share a quote with you I heard recently, and I'll tell you in a little bit. Um, I'd like to ask you this question or this thought. Do you think it comes from a pure heart or one that's contaminated and one that's carnal? This is the quote. It is easier to ask forgiveness than it is to ask permission. You don't have to respond out loud, but what do you think? Is that, a, is that a good thing? The preacher I heard share this, he said that there was a man that came into his place of business and he was talking and he was saying that he wanted to buy something and he knew his wife wouldn't approve. He said, I know, I wanted to buy this thing and my wife didn't want me to buy it. So I think it's probably easier to ask forgiveness than it is to ask permission. Maybe she felt that a bunch of his purchases had not turned out well, and she didn't want any more debt, and she wouldn't give her approval, but he felt like it would be easier to ask forgiveness than it would be to ask permission. So what do you think? Do you know what? There's a lot of people in our world today that have that same kind of spiritual theology. I really know that God probably wouldn't like me to do that, but I'll just ask forgiveness rather than permission. Brothers and sisters, I think that comes from a very carnal, a very corrupted heart. I hope we don't have that mindset among us here at the Peak Church. Because I believe that's presuming upon the grace of God if we feel like, I really think there's something that's on the bubble, something I probably shouldn't do, but I'm going to do it anyway, God will forgive me. That's carnal. That comes from the pit of hell. John 14.6 gives us a key into the holy city, and that comes through the Lord Jesus. But in the meantime, how should I live? It's getting late enough. Um, I said earlier that the flesh craves recognition, and I believe that to be true. But how should we live? I'm going to tell you the verses. Matthew chapter 6, verses 2 to 4, speaks about our tithes or our alms or giving. And Jesus said the scribes and the Pharisees, they like to make a lot of noise and they want people to know how much they're giving. But Jesus said, don't do that. He said, give in secret. And what? Your heavenly Father will do what? Reward you openly. In verses 5 to 6, Jesus talked about the scribes and the Pharisees and thinking about praying. He said, don't do like they do. They want to go out. They want you to see. They stand on the street corners and they pray and they want you to observe how spiritual they are and what did Jesus say? He said, don't do that. He said, 
go into your closet and shut your door and pray in secret and your heavenly father will same thing reward you openly and also verses 16 to 18 speaks of fasting and Jesus said the same thing don't do like the scribes and the Pharisees. They like to be seen and they disfigure their faces and all this. But you, when you fast, do it in secret and your Heavenly Father will reward you openly. In conclusion, brothers and sisters, if we have chosen heaven as our final destination, our itinerary must include the route by the way of the cross. It must include repentance from the old way of life. It must include the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And only then can we have power to live a victorious life. If we follow God's prescribed route, we have so much to look forward to, both now and in eternity. And I could refer to it, but... Scripture is important. I'm going to read you a couple more verses from Revelation chapter 1. If we follow Jesus' prescribed route in God's word, what do you have to look forward to now and in the future? Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 to 7. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. How wonderful. I hope you are loving these verses. I don't know how to say it. Verse 4, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor pain. Neither, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne be, said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these things are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. Notice this. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Jesus has paid, paved the way to heaven. In fact, Jesus is there interceding for you and me now. John 14, 3, I leave you with this verse. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. I say, praise his holy name. May God bless you to that end. May we follow his route and meet together in that wonderful place in heaven. Shall we have a song?